This episode of The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by Half Day. If you played in the Stinger, our annual member guest, you may remember the Half Day CBD Closest to the Pin Hickory Challenge. Now, through the link in our show notes, you can visit their full line of hemp-derived CBD products, and with the use of the promo code NEWCLUB15, you'll receive an additional 15% off your first order. I'll be back a little later in the show to share my personal experiences with Half Day. And if you're curious about the benefits of CBD for yourself, I encourage you guys to check them out. Michael McCartan, Will Smith, welcome to The Bag Drop. Hey, man. Hey, Matt. Great to be here. Hey, thanks for joining us this morning. We did our uh, our podcast, our member podcast, a few weeks ago with Brian McCune, and it just piqued everybody's interest enough. And we said, you know what, we got to get the guys really in the nitty gritty on, on National Links Trust on the pod to talk a little bit about the project. So uh, excited to have you guys on. Yeah, this is great. We're excited. Our pleasure to be here. Um, so. I've been fortunate to spend a, a decent amount of my young life in Athens, Georgia, uh, not as a student, as mostly a, uh, a little bit of a golfer, but mostly a, a football fan and uh, downtown Athens fan, a uh, college student. So my first question for both of you guys is, um, that's where you met, huh? Can you tell us about kind of your, where you guys got together? Where was it? Where did you meet down in Athens? Sure. Uh well, Mike and I were both uh, in the Masters of Landscape Architecture program. Um, I was in my third year when uh, Mike uh, started in the program, and both of us were there to learn about landscape architecture with the hope of getting into golf course design and construction. Um, at that point, I had worked um, a little bit for, for Tom Doak during the summers and prior to starting the MLA program. Um, Mike, I think you had done some construction work at that point. Uh, I actually, I was supposed to go out to Ballyneal the summer before I started at school, but um, the construction got delayed a year. Um, and then I was potentially going to go to Sabonic instead, and that I would have crossed paths with Will there. Um, but what, what ended up happening was I got into UGA for, you know, landscape architecture and I called Tom and asked about, you know, whether he thought it was a good idea and we talked about it for a bit and, and then he told me to call Will. So before I even went to UGA, I'd already talked to Will about, you know, what he liked and didn't like about UGA and whether he thought it was worth it. So, um, yeah, we were, we were, you know, even before getting there, I was excited to meet Will. Yeah. We're, we were, you know, both DC guys interested in golf course design and construction um, and you know, there we are in Athens, um, in our twenties and, um, you know, the football team was resurgent at that point. That was, uh, first year I was there was the year they, first time they went back to the sugar bowl, um, David green. Uh, so we, we had a good time for sure. Yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. We, we both taught golf. Will, Will, uh, started a golf course architecture, uh, studio class for fifth year undergrads. And, um, you know, I ended up teaching the same class, um, two years after he did. And so we, I don't know if that I, I sincerely doubt that has survived to this day, but, uh, you know, it was, it was really cool. Um, you know, thing that you know, for me and, and I know for Will, 
he wrote his thesis about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it was a great opportunity to kind of talk about your ideas about golf course design and, and in a way that anybody could understand it. So. And, and one of the cool things also uh, in between the year in between I, when I taught the class and then Mike taught it for two years, Troy Miller uh, taught it. And Troy is now the architect who's uh, redoing the Charleston Muni um, down in South Carolina. So um, pretty neat that the three of us are, are sort of all involved and in, still involved in the game, still involved in sort of restoring municipal golf. So it's yeah. uh, little did Georgia know that they were, you know, cultivating this pack of people who are going to be involved in, in public golf. I'm, I'd like to think, I, I, I hope they're proud of us, but I don't know if they really had any, um, you know, actual bearing on, on our trajectories, but maybe we did just by being around each other. Yeah, I think, I think prior to us sort of getting going, you know, at one point they had done some, some more golf course architecture stuff, but at that point, basically the only exposure that, that students had to golf course design was um, help, you know, maybe doing a, a routing and a housing development. It was more yeah. about laying out the, 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 the uh, lots than it was about the golf courses. And so <laughs> Don't we, knock that. We were able to change that a little bit in some people's minds, I think. So. Uh, that was like a highlight of my, you know, getting stuck in the, the studios where you can't control kind of what you're doing, but taking that class with the undergrads was like, all right, I get to do something, you know, that's kind of related. And then teacher was totally skeptical that he knew that I wanted to design the best golf course in a housing development. He was skeptical that I could, you know, fit the right number of lots in on the site at the same time. But, you know, I had a core golf course and a ton of lots. It was a solid solid design there. I'll, I'll get you your lots. Yeah. Just, just yeah. let me build this golf hole. I'll get <laughs> exactly. you your lots. Um, so we, we actually just launched this month our, uh, our Georgia market for uh, our golf society. So I was curious for you guys, you know, spending time in the state of Georgia, aspiring right. golf course architects and designers did, um, was there any place that you would seek out down there that uh, you found maybe inspiring in any way when it came to uh, significant golf course architecture? I, well, Will probably has a better handle on this because he, he was actually much more well-traveled while he was down there. But the one that, that was actually really inspiring and kind of a longer term um, impact for, you know, um, for my golf experience was uh, Cuscawilla. Um, that's a Corn Crenshaw course by Lake Oconee. And um, at the time, Rusty Mercer was the superintendent there. And then, you know, I guess four or five years later, um, Rusty was the superintendent um, at Streamsong when we were growing in the courses and building the courses there. And so I already had a connection to him that kind of preexisted, um, you know, our work at Streamsong. And it was just a really cool feeling to have that come together and have that familiarity right off the bat with the you know construction project at Streamsong. Yeah, I, I would reiterate just how great Rusty was. Um, you know, anytime we wanted to come down, uh, and certainly when I brought the the class down, you know, he was very generous with his time. And Cuscoilla is a is a heck of a golf course. Um, really, just incredible work by Cork Crenshaw. So um, that was definitely a standout. And then, you know, uh, another Georgia or Athens based golf course architect, Mike Young, um, was always very generous with his time and, you know, had a, had a, a bunch of really good designs in the area that were affordable. Um, you know, Mike's a very much of a pragmatist and 
understands that you can't necessarily, um, you know, outfit the course with all the bells and whistles and keep it and keep it affordable. So, you know, his designs were always interesting to check out. And um, I also, while I was in grad school, um, took some student loan money uh, and decided to join to Chessy Creek down on the on the South Carolina coast and another Cork Crenshaw design um, that I just fell in love with the first time I played it. Just uh, an incredible, um, you know, they, they got the most out of that property. And it's one of those courses that the more you play, the more you appreciate. There's just so many subtle, subtle things out there. And so to be able to go down there um, and and play that and also play the, the other courses along that South, South Carolina coast was uh, was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and, and I know Ch- Chassis a, a special place for the Outpost Club, which we'll hear you help found. Yeah, absolutely. Chassis one of our home clubs and it's been part of uh, our culture uh, and really the sort of the heart, heart and soul of what, what we do since, uh, since we launched back in 2010. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's a heck of a golf course, but it's a better place. The, the people there are just absolutely incredible, so welcoming. And um, it's, it's definitely a home. It's been a home away from home for me since 2003 and a home away from home for Outpost Club members since 2010. So we, we title this, uh, the tagline, I should say, of our podcast is The Untold Stories in Golf. So, you know, we're going to dive into National Links Trust, but I feel like one way to tell the untold story is to get to know the people behind the project a little bit more. So, um, Will, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, I, 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 we just alluded to it. You're the co-founder of the Outpost Club. You know, I, I was obviously... Um, know you guys very well concern in, in terms of your, uh, your foundation and how it got started, obviously started in a golf society myself. I was curious looking back to what was it? 2008 or around that time. And you guys were actually going to build a golf course in Nebraska Correct. Uh, yeah. was, was the economic downturn, which probably felt terrifying for someone trying to get funding for a golf course project. Was that a, a blessing? Was that a blessing in disguise? Yeah, so I was out building uh, the Prairie Club for Tom Lehman, um, and Kyle, Kyle Franz and I were the shapers um, out there, and Kyle and I got introduced to this property um, after work by the, it was owned by the, the, the motel owner that we were staying, the Rain Motel that had a red neon strip all along the outside, a single, single story. It was, uh, it was quite the spot to spend the summer, and he, he said, if you like that land at the Prairie Club, you ought to go check out check out this, this ranch I've got. So we, we popped down there and you know, it's beautiful heaving sand dunes, but it had this 80 acre spring fed lake right in the middle, middle of it with three phase power. And, you know, we fell in love with it, spent a bunch of time out there trying to figure out a routing. Kyle and I come up with a reversible uh, routing that, that uh, played, played along the North side of the lake and just, just incredible. And so I called up Colin Sheehan who um, I went to Yale with and, um, we'd always thought about designing and building golf courses together. And rather than having some rich guy pluck me out of a bulldozer, um, we were going to, we were going to put together the deal ourselves, raise the money and all that sort of stuff. So Colin came out, uh, he brought Quentin Lutz, who's our third co-founder in the Outpost Club. Quentin did international business development for, for Art Hills for a number of years. Um, they, they came out, fell in love with it. Uh, we decided to put together a prospectus and go try to raise a bunch of money and have this thing. Uh, get going and that was the fall of 2008 and so every single person we talked to said man those pictures look amazing looks like an incredible spot but you're crazy to try to do this right now and so we kind of went back to the drawing board Um, and one of the things we realized was that you know from the moment you you buy a buy the land or option the land to the moment the first golf 
golf shot is hit can be five, seven, ten years. And we had always, part of our prospectus was we were going to do events all across the country to try to sell memberships, but also to build camaraderie amongst the people that had already signed up. Uh, and we said, you know what, why don't we go approach some of these other clubs um, who, you know, it's, it's a tough time for them and see if they'd be willing to open their doors to a group of vetted private club members who understand the culture, understand, um, you know, play fast, uh, take, prefer to walk, take caddies, uh, respect the course, replace their divots, ball marks, all that sort of stuff. And our timing was great for that. And so um, rather than, than build a golf course, we decided we would, we would sort of take our knowledge of golf societies in the UK and, and put a little bit of an American spin on it. And, um, you know, that was, that was, you know, 09 when we sort of figured that out and we launched in February of 2010 and we celebrated our, our 10 year anniversary at the Lynx club, uh, in February, right before uh, the whole world changed. But, um, it's been an incredible run. And, um, honestly, the thing that's most rewarding is the, the friendships that I have made, but also the friendships that I've seen form, uh, between members of the outpost club. I, I've, I've got a friend who's very gregarious, very social. He's 60 years old, and he says nine of his 10 best friends are people he's met through the, through the OC. So, um, you know, we're doing, we're doing something right, and, and it's just a blast to, to go to these events and, and see, you know, spend time with fellow golf nuts. Um, as you well know, Matt, I'm sure you have similar experiences. Yeah, and I'm glad you guys did. I'm glad that the economy turned down and made that opportunity for you guys because obviously it uh, showed someone like myself who was introduced to golf societies in the UK in 2005. Um, you know, I just thought the same thing. And then I saw, oh, it does exist. Yeah. The United States does have golf societies and, and they're wonderful. Um, what, one question on that, because I think it will tie into what we talked a little bit about with the, the Lynx Trust. Does you know, in, in the UK today, there, there's hundreds of golf societies, obviously. And in the United States, um, you know, we're, we're a new one. Uh, there, there's really not that many. Um, you could probably count uh, them on one hand. Why, why do you think there's still so few? I mean, population-wise, there should be thousands of golf societies in the United States. Why, why do you think it's still kind of the, the concept is lagging behind our, our compatriots in, in the UK? Well, as I, I'm sure you know, I, back in the you know the early part of the 20th century, there were a lot of golf societies, and then they and they fell away. And then, you know, so much of golf has has been um, tied to your local scene, whether it's a municipal course or a country club. That I, I just don't think people thought across um, sort of geographic barriers, and, and and really there aren't barriers; they're just sort of mental barriers, and so. You know, I think I think there's got to be an organizing principle behind the golf society, and ours has been sort of architectural significance um, of the golf courses that we visit. Um, and you know, as you know, in the UK, there's the barrister society, there's the banker society, there's you know whether or not your your school that you went to, your college. Um, and so, I think I I think you're right. There should be a lot more in the U.S. And you know, as as we're seeing in the last few years, there's certainly an increase in in uh, people. Uh, interested in societies and um, you know we and, and I actually think there are more um, than we think they're just not quite as as visible don't you think uh, one one thing I always think about that's sort of related to this is that um, you know the evolution of golf in the UK especially over common land you'd have multiple clubs playing over the same course and I think that sharing of space and you know but with with you know, multiple groups of people and you could kind of choose which club you want to be a part of or 
maybe not choose. And uh, um, sometimes it's but, just where you live. It's, right, it's exactly. not a choice. It's right, right. this neighborhood. Right. Or, my, or, you know, maybe the choice is because like, you know, all of the, um, you know, the merchants or, you know, the uh, uh, people, common folk in a, you know, uh, in an area are part of one group and then the, all the richer people are in a different one or whatever it is, but they all can play out on the course. And um, so you're sharing space. And I think that that permits you to think of courses as not, you know, the property of one group and instead are, you know, the property of everybody, you know, or something to be shared. And, and then by thinking of it that way, you know, a private club is a little bit different of a concept than it is in the U S where it's one private club per course. Yeah. And so I don't know exactly how that all works together, but um, it feels like there's just, it, it, it makes the whole thing less rigid, I guess. Which yeah. Well, and sorry. Um, when we started the Outpost Club, and we, one of the first meetings we had was with Jim Chafin down at Chessie Creek, who was the owner down there at the time. And he, you know, he's an RNA guy, and you know, spent some timbers in St. Andrews. And so we, he, you know, understood the concept of having multiple clubs play over the same same golf courses. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Mike. That that that's part of it. Is that the idea of sharing golf courses is something that's foreign yeah. a, a little bit to the, to the U.S. Certainly in the private club scene. Um, you know, you know, golf societies predated golf clubs in the UK. So, I mean, yeah. it's been something that's part of their culture for forever. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, Langston Golf Course in DC is that um, it's been the home course to, to uh, you know, they, they say golf, many clubs, golf but many. They're, they're, yeah, many, yeah, many golf societies, but two very uh, important golf societies, the Wake Robin uh, Golf Society, which is uh, African American ladies and the Royals, which is African American men. And they, uh, I think date back, I think to maybe the first one was the late twenties and the other one was in the thirties predate the golf course and, um, are really, uh, incredible, uh, organizations. So, um, and I think, I think there's probably more of them, more, more golf societies than we know, uh, certainly at public golf courses where, the, you know, you have different groups playing, playing courses. It's just, maybe they don't call themselves golf societies. Yeah. Yeah. They might not also have the physical space, you know, that, uh, more formal societies in the UK or, or like you guys might, might be creating or, or, you know, or have, or like attempting, you know, it's just more of your league. I mean, in some ways, like a league is kind of like that, you know, that gets together all the time um, at a public course. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, staying with the, the theme of UK inspiration, I guess. Um, I did notice Michael, you, you studied abroad in St. Andrews, what looked for about a year. Yeah. Uh, to share a little bit of, of your experiences there as a, a young student of architecture and design. I mean, how has that impacted your road? Yeah. Um, well, a couple ways. I mean, before I left, I, I reached out to Tom because I was interested in, you know, since he had spent some time in St. Andrews, what, what I would, um, you know, look, what, what I should look to do while there if, if I want to see great courses in Scotland. Um, which ended up just kind of creating a correspondence with Tom that ended up turning into my internship and um, then working for Renaissance Golf. But um, more, you know, generally, I was going to study abroad in um, in uh, Florence with a bunch of friends from school. And I went into the study abroad office at Duke to, you know, 
kind of tell them what I was going to do. And I saw on the wall a St. Andrews University uh, pamphlet. And I like, you turned to the wall to pick it up and saw at the back of it that there was an opportunity to, you know, get a student membership basically um, on the, on the golf courses in, in town for 150 pounds for the year. And I was like, that was it. I, I had made my decision in that instant and I was going to St. Andrews instead. So, um, and that, that really is, I mean, it's a, it's a great school and a great town, but um, you know, and, and all of that made for a really fun experience, but you know, the cherry on top was being able to play kind of unlimited golf over, you know, my time there. And I was only going to go for a semester and a month in, I was like, what, what am I doing? I should stay here all year. This is, this is fantastic. And I lived a block from the first tee. I played the old course over a hundred times. Um, you know, in terms of education for golf architecture, it's just simply having the opportunity to play the old course and all the courses in St. Andrews enough times to, to know them really well. And, and obviously there are so many people throughout time who, you know, talk about their love for the old course. And I think a lot of that comes from similar opportunities to really get to know the course and not be, you know, guided around by somebody, but being able to guide yourself around it. And, and that's kind of the key to understanding why it's such a great place, great course. Well, um, one, I could go on about St. Andrews. I, I we, we could we could <laughs> a whole podcast. Well, I'll, I'll switch the destination on you before we get into uh, the project in D.C. Um, our, our D.C. members, though, would be, uh, upset with me if I didn't ask you about your can, can you share the schoolhouse nine tell us a little bit about the project maybe throw in your favorite golf hole out there if you have one probably hard to do but uh tell us tell us a little bit about that sure um well uh schoolhouse nine is a nine hole par three course um it's right up on the Shenandoah mountains um it's a really it's in a really great town um called Sperryville and in a lot of ways, it reminds me kind of a, of a mini um, setup like North Barrick or St. Andrews have where you kind of start right in town, right by kind of, and I use town loosely in Sperryville's, you know, context because it's a, you know, there might be like 10 buildings there, but it's still kind of a little compact space. And then you play out from um, a pub, which is the pub and, and old schoolhouse, which is the uh, clubhouse for the course and then you come back to it at the end um, so it feels like you're kind of leaving and, and returning to a real place um, and I mean it's like I don't want to oversell it it's it's meant to be kind of like uh, you know minimal there, there's minimal irrigation there's minimal construction that went into it um, you know since the greens are only irrigated everything else is kind of this it's not quite rough, but not quite fairway, you know, sort of thing. But hopefully the greens are interesting enough. Um, you know, the place, uh, you know, it's, it's beautiful and um, just the setting is compelling enough that, um, you know, it, it gets at why golf is really fun. It's just like a place to hit really fun shots and um, try some, try some things and, um, you know, it, it, I think it has all the things that make, make golf special without anything else. So it allows the course to be maintained really minimally. Um, the cost is, you know, 
10 to $20 around and you can play all day, I think for, for $25 or something like that. And, um, and it, it's, you know, the owner Cliff Miller, um, gets why, you know, the schoolhouse nine is, um, you know, a place where people would want to go and he doesn't try to do more than that. And I think, you know, when you're talking about owners of golf courses, just kind of understanding what you're shooting for is, and, and, and why it makes sense is half the battle and Cliff has nailed that. So, um, it's, 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 I, I really like it. I, I, my favorite hole is probably the seventh, which kind of plays from the lowest point of the property up to a ridge that's maybe 15 feet, you know, above from where you tee off. And the front part of the green, um, is right on the edge of the ridge. So you're kind of just trying to land it on top without going over the back part. You actually can't see, um, you know, but it's, it's kind of a low, um, trough that drains out behind the, um, the plateau of the front part of the green. And it's, it's cool because it's, it, you don't see the bottom of the flagstick. You're not quite sure what's back there. Um, so you have to, you have to kind of trust that you're playing to something and there's a little bowl in the back to, to stop your ball. So you're playing, um, I don't think you see a lot of shots like that where you're playing up to your ridge, but over into something lower behind it. Um, so hopefully it provides, you know, a lot of variety from day to day where you could have one pin where you're kind of on the edge of disaster and the other where you just don't quite know what you're, what you're hitting into. Um, so. Well, there's a, a lot of our, our members who are DC residents uh, have done some meetups out there. And uh, I, the first time I heard about it from one of those members, uh, Patrick McSpadden told me, he goes, Matt, it's just my happy place. You know, I, I go there. It's a place I can get my mind right. I was like, that is, that is a nice compliment for a golf course. I, I definitely, um, they, they do a lot for us, places like that. Awesome. Uh, uh, so getting to the National Links Trust, you know, as we were getting on the call today, I could tell you guys have a lot on, on the plate and uh, emails coming in with all, all different uh, aspects of the project. Um, that's, I, I guess for those that, that haven't listened to our previous pod, uh, aren't familiar with the project, could you guys maybe just give us a, a quick overview and then, and then kind of give us an update on, on where, um, where the project currently stands? Sure. Um, so National Links Trust was started. It's, it's probably easiest to talk about why we even, you know, um, bothered with it in the first place. We saw that the courses were, um, the DC courses were up for a lease negotiation with a group called the Federal City Council um, maybe two years ago. Um, and we, you know, just curious about what that meant, started kind of looking into, um, you know, what, what that involved. You know, it sounded like basically they were going to negotiate a, a, a long term lease and that would, you know, uh, enable some investment in the courses that wasn't possible, which, you know, on the face of it is exactly what needs to be, what needs to happen. Um, and as we were kind of investigating what kind of plans the federal city council was going to have for the courses, um, the whole process switched gears a little bit and ended up being a, um, an open, um, you know, request for a proposal from the park service to anybody, um, you know, so that, uh, that same concept of the long-term lease, uh, you know, could, could be um, taken on by, by anyone who wanted to apply. 
at that point, um, I think our main motivation was just to try and shape the direction of the process. Um, you know, we knew and, and know a lot about the histories of the courses in DC and um, kind of understand what would be given up if uh, the, the process moved in a, in a different direction. So, uh, you know, to give a little bit of background on that, you know, East Potomac was designed by Walter Travis. It was reversible. Um, you know, it, uh, it was very highly regarded when it was originally built. Um, Rock Creek was built by William Flynn, obviously a great golden age architect. Um, Langston just has this incredible history of um, providing access to golf um, for populations that, you know, especially traditionally have not had access. Um, the African-American golf community at Langston, you know, as Will mentioned earlier, uh, has really thrived in DC and Langston's been a big part of that. Um, and so what we wanted to do was ensure that whatever happened at the courses didn't change the culture around golf that's built up at each of the, each of the courses. And because there's been a real, um, history of proposals around the DC courses that have involved making a large investment in East Potomac or Langston, um, that, would allow for a course to charge, you know, $300 a round, you know, something like that to subsidize the rest of the operation. You know, we felt that would fundamentally change those cultures that had built up and that, you know, instead of being the access points to golf for people in the area, um, you'd be kind of taking away from that. And even if you charged a subsidized rate to, to locals, you're still catering to the golfers paying $300 a round. And that's just a different, thing from a welcoming, inviting, you know, kind of environment to something that um, is a lot different and not necessarily as welcoming and inviting. Um, anyway, so the idea was if we told the stories of the golf courses and how, um, you know, the idea from the beginning was to provide something great uh, from a golf course architecture standpoint, um, you know, and just a, a municipal facility standpoint, but you know, affordable and accessible at the same time, uh, that, you know, we, we could hopefully, you know, help the project take on more of a historic preservation angle where you're, you're kind of breathing, um, you know, life into bringing back what was once there, um, rather than, you know, building something entirely new, uh, that would fundamentally change the places. Um, and since this is really a long-term investment, it, it is the type of thing where it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So we felt very, uh, you know, strongly that the stories needed to be told and that at least needed to be absorbed by the communities in DC, what it meant to be giving up those histories to go in a different direction. So I'll, I'll let Will take it from. Yeah. Take it from <laughs> and so uh, last uh, spring um, we sort of ramped up our, our idea to sort of tell these stories. And, um, you know, we, we, we sort of realized though that the best way to ensure that the right thing happened at these courses was to put together a team and uh, respond to the RFP ourselves. Um, and through the, you know, through the powers of social media and, you know, other, other introductions, um, you know, a lot of people in the DC area reached out to us and, and offered to help. And, um, you know, we were able to sort of get a, a, some momentum 
here uh, on the ground with with you know volunteers like Brian um, and you know Mike and I have been working in the golf industry for a long time and so we reached out to to Tom Doak we reached out to Gil Hance um, and you know gauge their interest in in being involved in uh, you know a project like this um, you know we talked to Mike Kaiser who um, you immediately saw the value in in uh, the histories of these places and um, you know, we put together this team and, and um, the volunteer group, um, the RFP was issued last July, um, 13 months ago. It was originally due in right before Thanksgiving. They pushed it to the end of February. And um, luckily for us, I think, um, and we really grinded it out in February with a lot of volunteer uh, effort um, and, and, and submitted the, the, the proposal February 28th. I'm sure that RFP was a bear, so it's probably felt good to get done with and then felt even better to get the uh, the, the positive nod. I'm sure that was a big moment for the whole group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, February 28th, we handed in, then the world changes in mid-March, and I think all of us had our focuses on, on a lot of other things. And then sort of mid-June, we got word from the National Park Service that that um, they might be, you know, coming out with a decision. And uh, so we started to refocus and start to think about what exactly um, we were going to do if they said yes. What exactly were, were we going to do if they said no? Um, and on June 22nd, we might got a phone call and um, we've been, <laughs> we've been in overdrive ever since. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you know, the, um, I'm interested to dive into more of the stories. Honestly, I just finished a book uh, called Uneven Lies, who uh, one of our friends, Craig Bowen here in Chicago, uh, was one of the researchers on on the book. And and man, I can't tell you how many, I think Langston was probably the course that was mentioned most for a history of, of black golfers in America in this book. And and so I, I was just a history that I was unaware of and and just kind of scraping the iceberg, I can tell. I mean, the history of these places is, is unbelievable maybe more than you know any public access golf courses in our country so it's it's really cool to hear that you guys you know open it up and say you know this is it we tell the story of these places uh instead of recreating your own which i am sure there were other proposals or other you know ideas that um were creating their own uh versus what you, what you guys the approach you guys took yeah i mean when they're when there's a situation like this where um, there are a lot of potential paths forward, it's hard to build consensus around something totally new. Um, at the same time, it's a lot easier to build consensus around places like the three DC courses where there's such a great history to reference and grow, you know, grow forward from. Um, and I think that's a much more powerful story than, Hey, I've got this great new, I mean, there's no need to come up with something new if, you know, something great was already there and it's just a matter of kind of tapping into it and, and bringing it back. And um, one of the things that we were very heartened when we, when the, when the National Park Service issued their, their RFP with the supporting materials, um, it was clear that they had done their research. It was clear that they understood what incredible places these, uh, these courses were and are currently um, and that their vision for what they should be going forward was very similar to yeah. ours. And that was massive um, for us. 
And, um, you know, the, the Langston piece is really incredible. It, it, it is um, the, the heart and soul of, of black golf in America. And, um, it, you know, it, it should be celebrated um, as such. Um, you know, we've, we've already been in talks with the USGA and the, um, the USGA Golf Museum uh, about how to incorporate that history more prominently um, at Langston. And um, it's, it's a story that we, you know, we want to highlight and, and bring further to the forefront. I, th I think the, uh, that's, that's just so cool. And the preservation, uh, how it ties in with National Park Service, I guess for us uh, golf nerds that were, were, you know, excitedly following along, um, I, th I think what it does, and with social media, it's so easy, but, you know, you kind of feel like you're in that bubble, right, of people that appreciate um, interesting golf course architecture and, and that it seems like everyone else is kind of ignoring it, but there's this group that, you know, you're, you're following along with that, that does get it. And I think something like this, a project like this, because obviously it's got a bigger mission and that's what we're talking about is, is the communities around this golf course, but, but it also does, it, it ties into the fact that it's architecturally good and, and fun and interesting. And, and I think, for National Park Service to identify with this group and, and seeing that it's all part of the same, you know, the preservation of it, it ties in with their mission. I think of what it felt like for um, just a fan of, of GCA is that there's a group acknowledging it and that, that it all does tie together. And it's not just for, you know, a, a few private country clubs that, that have the funds to create this thing. It can be for the masses. And I think, you know, those of us that have traveled to the UK see this, and 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 we don't see it at home and so i think that's why so many of us are are looking to support uh national links trust and and all you guys are doing because it does have that tie-in to our golf yeah definitely i mean i think what's what's really interesting is that you you can go to the uk and see you know courses that are maintained pretty minimally that don't cost a lot to play but are amazing um, architecturally um, and you don't see that nearly as often if at all in the United States and I think you know it's partly a function of the era in which a lot of municipal and public courses were built in the US where architecture you know was not necessarily uh, you know as emphasized as it is now or back in the golden age um, but then you get places like East Potomac and Rock Creek and you know, a bunch of other, you know, prominent municipal courses around the country where it's more a matter of lack of investment and deterioration over time um, because those ideals were present when the courses were built um, and they've just kind of been lost. So, um, you know, as, as it relates here, I mean, uh, yeah, I do think the Park Service, it, it's, it's really kind of a... a a great, as you say, it's like a confluence of, of, you know, it's a perfect storm because what they do is historic preservation and they do identify, um, even in something as like arcane as golf course architecture, that there was something uh, of importance that was built at these courses and that, you know, could be brought back and it's, and there's nothing really stopping you. Um, uh, so, so they're trying to put in place a structure to make it happen and, 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 you know, not just in the lease, but also in their research. Like the, the woman who wrote 
you know, the histories of the courses that kind of went along with the, the lease documents. Uh, she didn't know anything about golf course architecture before she started. Her name's Patty Coon Babin. And, and she's an expert now. No joke. She's, she could give you, a, you know, a dissertation on um, golf course architecture in the golden age because she needed to know that in order to be able to talk about the DC courses in context. And it's just incredible uh, that they put so much time and effort into documenting those things and, and using that to guide, you know, their, their RFP. Yeah. I remember last July reading through the supporting documents and getting to the section where they, where the national park service recommended exploring, returning the reversibility to the, to the blue course at East Potomac. And I remember calling up Mike and reading him the section and just being like, can you believe this? This is, they've gone this far. And like, imagine a, a, you know, if you're a, uh, you know, a golfer who's really just getting the bug and going around a golf course one day and seeing it and being started to figure it out. And then the next day you come out and play and you've got a completely different challenge in front of you. And, you know, how much more engaged are you going to be by having that to, to noodle in, in your brain? Yeah. And You're forced to be engaged. You can't not be, you know, in that scenario. It's, it's almost like forcing golf architecture upon you. You might not think about it in other contexts because you're always playing the same course but you're right day to day it's like a you you have to be looking at the land as being like oh man this is just totally different than what i did the day before yeah you know one of our you know i would say if our group had a uh you know or mike and i had a thesis is that engaging golf course architecture um will help bring people to the game of golf or keep people in the game of golf and you know, we hope that, that these courses will be a little bit of a, a, a laboratory to, to test that out. Um, you know, I think we're all on this golf course, uh, on this call, because golf uh, really is important in our lives. And I think we believe that golf can change people's lives, the trajectory of people's lives. And, um, you know, while we're geeking out on the golf course architecture side of things, you know, I, a, a huge part of what we need to accomplish at these at these courses and these these places is to create programs that will will um, change people's lives, whether or not they're they're totally into golf architecture or not, and um, and that's one of the things we're excited uh, going forward to work with great organizations like like the First Tee and Golf My Future My Game and uh, the Western Golf Association potentially with the Evans Scholar Program. Um, so there's there's all sorts of great stuff that we can accomplish uh, at at these at these facilities. Yeah, the the. Um you know, that's such a good point, Will, that it, it, it's not ju- the architecture for us that we geek out on. Yes, it, it serves a purpose for us, obviously, and, and uh, allows us to, to feel a connection to a course in, in a game much more so than um, a course that's less stimulating in that way. But uh, I, I think those of us that have played some of the, I'll call it rare uh, entry places where people get to pick up the game, I, I know I've so I'll use an example from my own experience with a reversible golf course. Um, I took my bachelor party. I got married last year and I took my bachelor party to the loop. And, you know, these are, these are uh, some beginners in our group, some folks that haven't, haven't uh, been playing the game very long. Um, just kind of my buddies that grew up playing other sports and, and family that, that really aren't that much into the game like me. And I, I just, you saw something different you saw something different, how they interacted with it. And I, I do think that forced engagement happened where it was at first a novelty, like, Oh, we're going to play the same place. And then we're going to play it backwards. 
but but then they started really trying to pay attention to you know they're turning around on holes and thinking about oh did I come in from this way no I you know I played this hole so bad I think I did play it this way yesterday you know right. stuff like that and and it was really a different post round reflection than other courses that that I have played with that same exact group and. And I think it's just rewarding as, as someone who uh, promotes this stuff and tries to, to get more people to, to pay attention to it, that they, they don't need to pay attention to it, that, but they're going to get the benefit from it and it's going to keep them coming back. And there are, you know, everybody always, that same group bugs me about going back to that place. And that's what I w- would love for, uh, you know, more local, localized golf. Yeah, I was fortunate to play at the, uh, the Renaissance Cup um, at the Loop. And I mean, I was absolutely blown away with how cool it was but my biggest regret was that, you know, it's, it's in the you know, fairly remote Michigan and I live in DC and it's just not a place I'm going to be able to get to very regularly to try to figure it out. And I, you know, I don't know if it's possible to figure it out, but at least try. And um, so I'm excited that potentially we might be able to do a reversible course here in DC where people could play it day after day after day and, and really learn, uh, really, you know, try to dissect it and uh, see how it all works. Yeah. Um, this this team uh that you guys have put together from the design world i i gotta ask because you know when i saw the the list uh announced of who's going to be working on uh each course um i thought to myself you know did they just have a hit list of like the world's best i mean you guys probably didn't get very far down that list was it were you surprised at all that the response you got from, I mean, obviously you have these remarkable relationships in a very small world of, of the golf business, but um, did you guys even surprise yourselves at all that every, the group that has agreed to participate all 100% are in? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I mean, like, you know, Doak, Doak, you know, had spoken, I think, to Mike privately about his interest in, in a, you know, Travis reversible golf course. And so I think when we sort of asked him to be involved, I think we had some idea that, that he might have an interest. Mike, correct me if I'm wrong there. No, no, that's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, Tom isn't necessarily looking to do a lot of renovation work going into the future. I mean, I, I, I think that is true, but also with the caveat that he has a list of, places where he's extremely excited to bring something back of significance. And um, you can see that at Bel Air, you can see that elsewhere, right? So, I mean, um, and given his background with, you know, Walter Travis at Garden City and Aquanic and, you know, plenty of of other places um, and his interest in reversibility that the East Potomac, you know, property is really, intriguing for him so i mean i i think the other element there is that um you know tom you know he a lot of his best courses are are either private or in remote places and public and those places are hard to see great golf architecture and so he gets just as much as anybody that being able to provide something um you know from an architecture standpoint that's different and unique but accept, like truly accessible to a lot of people um, is is really important to you know um, to him as a golf architecture nerd, but also you know and and to us same reason, but also um, you know just from an exposure standpoint, it's 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 something that uh, 
you know, can capture people's imagination from the point in which they get into golf, um, as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, where these things typically end up, which is at like the bottom of the funnel. Once you're, you know, once you're sufficiently hooked on all the other parts of golf, then you move on to the, you know, the places that are, um, you know, higher end or, you know, uh, more architecturally, you know, uh, significant or whatever but it's, there's no real reason that has to be the case and, and gill and jim um gill hanson jim wagner you know they're, they're they're great guys that jim jim has done a lot of work um on trying to get Cobbs creek going up in philadelphia um they were in town last summer um working on burning tree um a pretty a pretty different spot than than rock creek um and they, you know, they, they came out and looked at the property and while, while they're very, very busy, they, they really care about the game and care about its future. And um, I think they saw the potential to do something really cool there. Um, that would be a, a huge, huge uh, benefit to the juniors in the area. And, um, you know, so, I, well, you know, it's, I, I thought there was a decent chance they might say yes, <laughs> um, but we were thrilled when they did. And, um, and then actually Bo Welling, we got introduced to Bo is in town. Um, for the Urban Land Institute conference, I think I don't must have been last spring, um, and you know we we were really impressed with his understanding of of all of the sort of issues at play, and um, you know his relationship with Tiger Woods design was intriguing, and um, you know we're we're excited to work with Bo. He, he he I think really believes in creating fun golf courses, and um, you know we're 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 looking forward to that. I. I've been able to to meet Bo a couple times at the uh, South Shore project here in Chicago. He's he's uh, been part of those community meetings, and uh, I will say the guy can carry a room pretty well too. Yeah, we we public, uh, public street speaker extraordinaire. I was very impressed. We 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 think you know we think that experience is definitely valuable. So we were we're excited excited to sign Bo up. That's 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 great. Um, so I know you guys are busy. I don't want to take too much. Well, we could talk about this project all day because obviously it's, it's just uh, it's just such an inspiring story in the game of golf. And we're going to continue to talk about it for, for many years, I'm sure. But um, I guess one thing I'm, I'm curious of is to start being kind of a, a long-term vision guy. I, I already get, get hopeful. I know there's a lot of work directly in front of you. Um, but myself being... Uh, a bit of a dreamer. I, stuff like this happens, and and I start thinking probably too far ahead most of the time. But I, I do want to ask you guys because uh, I, I one of the places that I learned the game of golf was inside uh, of a national park, uh, Cuyahoga Valley National Park in in uh, Northeast Ohio, um, and and that co- golf course closed down a few few years ago, two years ago. Um, it had a great par three course, a, a very interesting uh, dualism between the, the big course and the two different nines. Uh, really, really cool, cool golf course and, and um, was, I believe, on a lease with the National Park Service. So, you know, as this project gets underway, I, I guess my question simply is, is this just the beginning? Is there other, um, other projects that you guys have in the future for National Links Trust? I mean, I know the mission is, is broader than uh, just this one project. And, and with that, um, you know, wh- what do you guys think? Do you think about that today? Or you're like, no, man, we just got to, we got to handle the, the permits and, and everything in the short term. But is this, is this also on the radar? 
I think the answer is yes, um, with the caveat that we have to be successful in DC first, and there's a lot of work to do before I think we could turn our focus fully, any, not even fully, uh, partially elsewhere, right? We have, to, um, we have to show that we're creating a model that would work elsewhere. And so, yeah, it's just a, it's a big effort. And, and so while we recognize that there's an opportunity to do this elsewhere, um, it's probably not for several years before we could really, you know, look at that and, and put in play some kind of, um, you know, strategy to, to make it happen. And Will, do you have any other? No, I, I, I think our, our vision certainly is, is bigger than DC, but DC, you know, as Mike said, you got to prove it works here in DC and we'll learn a lot in the next few years. And, um, you know, we're, we're currently, um, uh, looking for an executive director and have applications coming in. And, you know, I think, you know, that hire will, will also determine a little bit kind of where our focus is in the next few years. And uh, mm-hmm. we got a lot of great people. And um, so, yeah, it, we have, we have visions uh, for more than DC, but DC is, is where our, our focus is for sure right now. And rightfully so. Um well, well, in 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 that, I do want to ask, you know, for those that are listening, thinking, "Man, this sounds cool. Uh, I wish I had this w- where I grew up. I wish I I grew up in D.C. I wish I had that when I was in D.C." Or someone that's saying that, or those of us that are, you know, have kids. A lot of our membership um, are new mothers and fathers, and uh, we're looking to introduce our kids to the game. And so, places like this uh, just seem to make so much sense to us or, or what the vision that you guys have laid out uh, makes so much sense. So my main question for you guys is how can we support? Um, I know there's the auction up right now. I, I don't know when this will, uh, will go live. We might not catch the auction, but what are other ways that you know, people can get involved with National Link Trust? So I, I would say the first, first thing would be to go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, um, stay informed about what we're doing. Um, we've got some, some great uh, swag that's up on our site that, you know, if you want to uh, buy and support us as you go out and play golf uh, and spread the word, um, that would be great if you just wanted to donate. Uh, that also would be useful. Um, and, you know, follow us on Instagram and Twitter and, and, and just be an advocate for, um, not, not just National Links Trust, but municipal golf in general. And, and um, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think there is a movement uh, around municipal golf. I know um, uh, there was an article last week called the Munisance. And, and I, you know, I think, I think it, if we as golfers um, decide that municipal golf is, is really important, then, um everyone else in the game will follow. Um, so I, I just, just, just go out, play more municipal golf, talk about it, uh, share, share about it. And, um, and I think that's, that's, that's one way of, of, of helping out. Yeah. We're also, we also have a database of, of volunteers, people who are interested in helping. And um, if, you know, anyone is interested on, on, you know, actually donating time, um, you know, I would suggest to, um, you know, email us and, you know, provide some information about your background so that as projects come up over time, you know, we can kind of go back to that database and say, hey, these people are interested in, 
um, you know, marketing or whatever it might be. And then we can kind of, uh, you know, help, uh, you know, pull together, you know, a, a, a group of supporters to, to do, you know, targeted things over time. Yeah, that, that email is team at nationallinkstrust.com. Uh, and obviously our webpage is nationallinkstrust.com. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to some of that stuff in the in the show notes for everybody that's listening and wants to to check it out. But uh, gentlemen, it was really enjoyable chatting with you this morning. Uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing. And the rest of us, we'll, we'll go stop by our local muni just in, and be thinking about you guys. Thanks, Matt. Great. Really appreciate your time. This episode was brought to you by Half Day CBD. Personally, I started using Half Day CBD products a little more than a year ago to assist in three key areas. I use the Half Day oils as part of my bedtime ritual. I like to use the Half Day topical relief creams for my knees, which always start to ache around this time in the golf season. And I use the Half Day CBD gummies as a way to curb some of my first tee jitters before an especially nervy match or tournament. Using the link in our show notes, you can now check out their full line of hemp-derived CBD products and with the promo code NEWCLUB15, you'll receive an additional 15% off your first order. You'll also see some of the half-day staffers at our upcoming tournaments and events for the second half of the golf season. So if you're interested in the use of CBD products or just curious about the benefits for yourself, I encourage you to say hello and check them out.